theme. Please take your Bibles with me as we turn in the Gospel of Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. And again, the theme of our message will be just that. The Lord is our salvation. And that will be our concluding application point. So you already know the purpose of the message this morning. The Lord is our salvation. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 12. And the title of the message is The Sovereign Servant of God. The Sovereign Servant of of God. As we come, as we've been studying through Matthew's gospel, uh, we come to a crisis moment, not ultimately, but in the surface level, in the life and ministry of Jesus. There's a number of things that that are taking place. And the most obvious one here in our text is that the religious establishment, the religious leaders, more specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, have rejected Christ. This is not just in their hearts, but they are now purposing and determining what is the seeds of the cross, at least from man's perspective. And as we saw last week, this is where we, where we left off. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 12, and I want us to begin in verse 14. And we'll read down through verse 21. But then the Pharisees went out, and they plotted against him. Notice here how they might destroy him. The context here is a miracle. The man with the withered hand has just been healed. He's just been healed on the Sabbath day. And this is the ultimate offense to the Pharisees, the fact that that they could pull a sheep out of the ditch if it was their sheep or their lamb, but the fact that Jesus would heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day was just too much. And so they are plotting now how to destroy him. Verse 15, but notice we see here the omniscience of Christ. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying. Now we see a quotation here. Matthew is bringing in, as he is wont to do regularly, Isaiah's prophecies. He, he here quotes Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And I will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor will he cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. This is the word of the Lord. As we've seen, this is a decisive point in the ministry of Jesus, Matthew chapter, the end of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12 is really a sobering passage and a, and a one that just leaves you feeling spiritually hardened and dirty because that's what the focus is. We see the hardened focus of the religious Pharisees and how they reject the light. They love John 3. They love darkness rather than light. Instead of coming to the light of the world that is the Lord Jesus and responding to his message, seeing him as he says he is, seeing his miracles and their heart being softened, hearing his message, desiring to be shepherded by him. Remember Matthew chapter 9 verse 38 where he says he was moved with compassion towards them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. Instead of coming to the loving Christ, they decide to kill him. Their hearts hardened towards him. Verse 14, they plot in how they might destroy him. 
Notice by way of introduction that the omniscience of Jesus is shown here in the text. When he knew this, here we see both the, the, the God-man in Christ Jesus. We see his omniscience on display. Jesus had the ability to recognize, read hearts and minds. Multiple times in his ministry, when he sees the response of those in front of him, he withdraws himself. Verse 15 tells us that's exactly what he did because Jesus is being led by the Father. He's being led by the Spirit. Men will not crucify him before it is his time. This is important to to draw out of the text. Because in the same way that God the Father ordains the steps of his sovereign servant, his son. Friends, listen, he guides us in our lives as well. This is what we call his, his providence. This is what we call the shepherding work of God the Father. The Lord, Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads us all the days of our life, even into the shadows of death, the shadow of the valley of death. We see that Jesus' healing ministry, again, as Matthew gives attention to this, is absolutely comprehensive. Jesus is not like a modern-day faith healer. His healing ministry is observable. It's provable. His healing ministry is immediately verifiable. All who can see, see the dead race to life. Those who saw the dead body now see it breathing life again when Jesus has touched them. Those who were once afflicted by leprosy are now healed, and a death sentence that was placed upon them is now completely removed, and this is clear for all to see. Not only does Jesus heal all who come to him, but he warns them not to tell, multiple times, not to tell who he is. In fact, this is a regular habit of Jesus' ministry. When he performs a miracle to demand secrecy about his identity, and about his activity. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, this is the second time here in in our text that Jesus does this. Back in chapter 8, verse 4, if you remember the healing of the leper, this amazing miracle. He says, See that you tell no one, but go your way, tell the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And if you remember, when we looked at that passage, we were like, Really, Jesus? (laughs) This man has had a death sentence upon his life, and yet you've healed him, you've touched him, and you expect him not to rejoice? You expect him not to tell, and here's the point, which is often the point, they're not the point. As wonderful that is on a personal level, we've got to get our eyes up above and see God's purposes and God's plan. Why is Jesus doing this? Is he ashamed of his own healing work? And the answer is absolutely no. He is marching to the steps of the Father. His goal is not to stir up the crowds with a misunderstanding of his nature and identity. For them to think that he is the Messiah who's come to overthrow Rome today. They're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the signs of the Messiah. The problem is is they like Jesus' actions. They like his miracles. They just don't like his, his timing or his message. The typical person, the typical Jew in Israel was hoping for liberation hoping to be relieved from the oppression of the Roman occupation in their land. They're looking for the total fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah who would restore the dignity of the Davidic kingdom to Israel. They want it now. They can taste it. They can see it. And here we see an example as the Messiah is doing his messianic work. He asks that their message be toned down. Please be careful. These are the reasons 
that he does it. He returns to this pattern that's already been seen in the virgin birth of Christ, for example, chapter 1, verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, here, Matthew wants us to know Jesus is Christ. He is the Son of God. And so in our text here in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew is doing what he has done again and again by saying, notice how Jesus is the Messiah, how he fulfills what the Messiah is supposed to fulfill. Chapter 1, verse 22, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Look to Jesus. This is the Messiah, Matthew is saying. Chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, he fulfilled the saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. In the same way, he fulfills that. And here, he fulfills the description of the coming promised one. So here in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew introduces really what is the largest or the longest Old Testament citation. The longest Old Testament quotation in his gospel. And he brings it, he invokes it, he brings it right here in the contrast of rejection. In other words, Matthew's audience is not only us, but it's for the Jewish follower who's confused. And they're sitting here saying, now wait a second, Jesus is fulfilling everything the law and the prophets says the Messiah will. But why do they reject him? Pointing to the religious leaders. This is for the, the person who is confused, perplexed. It's almost as if when a political candidate begins to run for office, before they can really gain traction, at least in our, this may be a bad analogy, by the way, but just in our current, current world, it's all the, the affirmations that are given, the endorsements that are given. And when people start to see the, well, who's who endorses him, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I'm missing something. I haven't seen anything or whatever, but, but he endorses him. Maybe I should endorse him. There's a tier level in our thinking and in our society. And so Matthew is writing and saying, if they don't endorse him, maybe I'm missing something. Friends, you're not missing anything. They're not missing anything. And Matthew wants to take the hammer and the nail of God's word, and he wants to drive this point home this morning. He's quoting, and he refers to Isaiah 42, and as we walk through this Old Testament prophecy, I want you to notice here, first of all, how Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he is the selected servant. Notice verse 18. He is the selected servant. Behold, my servant, this is God the Father speaking, behold, my servant, who I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul, God says, is well pleased. What we have here in our text is the fact that God is delighted in his son. God has chosen this instrument, the second person of the triune Godhead, to fulfill redemption's plan. To those who are wondering, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Matthew says, yes. Look to Christ. Look at what God says about his work. Look at what God says, God the Father says about his person. And here, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit places the spotlight in this dark spiritual backdrop of rejection and hardening of hearts, literally plotting how can we extinguish this man's life, the God-man? How can we get him off the scene? The Holy Spirit places this spotlight upon the beautiful person of Christ. 
The father here in verse 18 chose us. He chose the son for the role and purpose of salvation. God the father chose the Lord Jesus Christ from among the Godhead. And when we put it like that, it's even interesting because we look at it from uh, the, the, the known vantage point. But he chose the son to be the savior, not the Holy Spirit. God chose the Son, sent the Son. He is the selected servant. He is the sovereign servant. He is the chosen instrument for salvation's plan, giving him the incarnational task to go and to secure a people, to secure his bride. Notice verse 18, the word, the emphasis with exclamation, Behold, behold, to know who he is. Behold Christ, know what he has done. Behold, look to Jesus and come to him and rest in him, quoting the theme of just a few weeks ago where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary. God the Father says to us here this morning, right here in Rome County in Kingston, Tennessee at 11.25 in the morning, behold my son, behold my sovereign servant whom I have chosen. The word used in the original prophecy, Matthew's kind of giving a, a, a quotation of it. Behold my elect one, the one that I have chosen. Here Jesus remains co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father, and yet the Father has assigned him a redemptive work to do. And this is what we call the work of salvation, the work of redemption. And thus his title, he is the servant. He is the servant of the Lord. Now Christ was very aware of his calling and mission. He never got away from it. Again, in the response to threats, Jesus withdraws again and again in the text. But passage after passage in the New Testament reminds us that he knew his purpose. He never got away from his purpose. Nothing would deter or derail him from fulfilling the Father's will. John 4, he says, my food, literally the desire, the drive of my life, my ambition is not my belly, my food, my ambition is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to accomplish his work. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He is the selected servant, and he models for us this beautiful humility and submission to the Father. My chosen one. Now, this took place before the foundation of the world, of course. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Where Peter says, Christ, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for me and for you. Chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Peter, he says, He was rejected indeed by men, but a chosen instrument by God, chosen by God and precious, precious in the eyes of the Father. Listen, if no one, if no one was pleased with Jesus, God was pleased with Jesus. And friends, listen, we're not Jesus, but as his disciples, as his adopted ones, by the way, my selected servant, my chosen servant, the, the word is used in the same way in Greek vernacular for a man who does the irrevocable act of adopting a son. Same word. It is secure. It is final. This is my chosen servant. Listen, as those who are in Christ by faith, if no one approves of your faithfulness to the gospel, just know this, God is approved, is, is, is happy with your obedience to his will, to his call, to the gospel. Jonathan Edwards, 18 years old, 
came up with a list of what's called the resolutions. Very early in the list, and maybe number one, I can't remember, but he says, resolved, I will live for God. The next one was resolved, I will live, if no one else will, I will still live for God. Now that sounds good on paper. In reality and in life, that is very, very difficult. But friends, look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him by the Father did exactly this. So the Father delights in his Son. And by the way, he wants us to delight in his Son as well. Jesus is not to be a byword on your mouth that you utter all throughout the day, casually in ways that would be blasphemy, taking his name in vain. Remember this, God loves his Son, delights in his Son. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 and when we speak of the Son, it is to be with the same reverence as well. How do we know this? Well, we see this Old Testament prophecy, but within Matthew's gospel, Matthew 3, 17, at his baptism, remember, he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus lived, in one sense you could say, for the audience of one. And in the same way, friends, we are to live for the audience of one. And I'm afraid, uh, just by way of application, I don't want to go too far in this direction because we need to stick to the Christological nature of this text, but, but I'm afraid that we're living our lives like this, exclusively, where we need to begin living it like this. And when we live it like this, vertically, fixing our eyes upon the one with whom we have to do, with the one who saves our soul, with the one to whom we'll give an account, all of this just gets taken care of. It gets reframed as we live this life by faith. And Matthew chapter 17, at his transfiguration, we see the Father again says publicly, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But notice the part, hear him, hear his preaching, hear his teaching, hear his message. And I would say to us this morning, hear Christ, come to Christ, hear the word of Christ, the selected servant. Then in verse 18, we notice here the spirit-led servant. Notice what the Father says. He says, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will preach. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Again, we see this beautiful inter-Trinitarian affirmation of who Jesus is. We see their relationship. The Father plans salvation. The Son secures and accomplishes salvation. The Holy Spirit activates, initiates, and empowers salvation. So great would the Son's work be that the Holy Spirit enables and strengthens and undergirds Him in His earthly ministry. We heard the scripture reading a moment ago, Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, church, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was that? who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Notice here, the selected servant, my chosen instrument, well here, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross." Jesus fulfilled the Father's will perfectly in his humanity, in his, in his humiliation. And how he did this was by the aiding and leading the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice this beautiful triune Trinitarian 
work. The Father says this, I have placed my spirit upon him to empower him, to energize him with all that lays before him in the road to the cross to enable him to carry out the plan of redemption. In fact, at his baptism, you'll notice, as I just quoted a moment ago, back in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. Matthew chapter 4, the passage immediately following, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was led by the Spirit during his testing to resist temptation. The Holy Spirit models with Jesus how to use the sword of the Spirit so that he can withstand the testing and the trial that comes before him. And friends, it's the same for us as well. And afterwards, Matthew records for us, Jesus returned to the region preaching and teaching and healing in the power of the Spirit. Now notice how the Holy Spirit guides Jesus and works in Jesus. We've given some examples as well. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we see that he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he reads a portion of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 49. And as he reads the passage, and basically says, this is fulfilled in your hearing this day, verse 28, he says, the text tells us that all who were in that synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he just went his way. What we see here is that the Spirit leads Jesus, empowers Jesus, the sovereign God-man, Son of God. And as he leads, even here, when Jesus heard this, he went on his way. The Father's perfect will will be accomplished in the Father's perfect time. Behold the divine mystery of God's sovereign purposes and the will of men and the variables of real-time experience. And yet know this, God will perform all things for his glory, in his timing, in his own way. Even Jesus, the sovereign servant, knows this and submits to this. And he will not be crucified one second before it's his time to be secured, to be crucified. Even in the last moments of his death, he's redeeming, not only in his action, but also in his conversations with the thief on the cross that is next to him. Just behold the beautiful plan of God, the mystery of God. Behold it for what it is. I think sometimes we just try to get into it and get every answer figured out. Just be amazed at his glory and his beauty and just rest in it. And then when you and I struggle with God's purposes and plan for our life, just know this. God does all things well, friends. He does all things well, even when we don't see and even when we don't understand. Thirdly, he's not only the the spirit-led servant, he is the sovereign servant. Verse 18, and he, when he comes, he will declare justice. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. This servant will come to his people and all nations. His death will be efficacious for the Jew and the Gentile. He will preach and he will proclaim and he will achieve the purposes of his father. Isaiah 9 verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, to establish it and judgment with judgment and justice from the time forward and even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We see the Father guiding and leading by His providence. 
And all of this will be brought together by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. This is the sovereign servant. Look to him and live. That's why he tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me. He's already displayed this, the sovereign servant has. He's displayed power over the physical realm, healing, diseases, and natural ailments. He's shown power over the spiritual realm, casting out demons and overcoming Satan. He's shown power over the natural realm in the sense of, of weather and storms. Look to Jesus. He is who he says he is. No earthly man can do this. This is the Messiah. Hear his message. Let him shepherd you. Come, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His yoke is not like the yoke of the religious Pharisees. Adding phone books, as I said the other day. I don't know why I said phone books. But just huge volumes upon huge volumes upon huge volumes that you can never meet or fulfill. Come to Jesus and rest in him. Let his spirit work in and through you to teach you the truth, to lead you into the truth. Let the word of God dwell in you richly as you rest in his finished work. His burden is easy. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Fourthly, we see he is a sensitive servant. Verse 19. In his ministry, he will know how to deal with people. Notice he will not quarrel. He will not be antagonistic for the sake of being antagonistic. We, we live in that kind of day, don't we? People love to argue. People love to engage in 120 character debates. People love to try to solve the eternal glories and mysteries of God and for all time and, you know, like little ticky-tack, you know, typing away. And it can bring out the worst in our natures, can it? Jesus always followed the Father's will, knew exactly when to speak truth in grace, how to say it, when to be sarcastic at times, of course, to the religious Pharisees. He knew how to speak, but his aim, his ambition, was not to quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, puffed up in a carnal way, in a, in a way that inflates. No, listen, 1 Peter 1.23, Peter says this, is that I witness to his ministry, he, Christ, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. You did not see him, as he quoted, casting his pearls before swine. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself, notice here, to him who judges righteously. Going back to trusting God, trusting his care and his providence and his sovereignty. Jesus shows us what this looks like. He, he didn't have to win every argument. He didn't have to win every battle. He didn't have to always be right. He committed himself to the judge who judges righteously. Pause. That does not mean he didn't speak the truth. It doesn't mean he was quiet. It doesn't mean he, he did not share the truth to those who needed it. No, he did that. But he was not committed, he was not committed to carnal or physical or personality-driven arguments for the sake of winning. No. Verse 24, he who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep growing astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. While Jesus breathed out in his suffering his last breaths, he was praying. He was looking. He was pleading with the Father to not hold against them, 
things that they were not fully aware of. He says, in response to, or excuse me, in opposition, the exact opposite of making threats from the cross, he prayed, he spoke with grace and compassion. He said, today, sinner, you will be with me in paradise. All that he did, even his rebukes, were actually done in love, embodying truth and grace. You know, in our society today, if you don't agree with me, you don't love me. Friends, that's not love. Love is not exclusive and total affirmation. True love is not complete assent. Sure, you do whatever you want to do. You're right. Never cross-graining. But today in society, love is you just hug me and that's it. You just agree with me. That's, that's all you need to do. That's not what we see from our shepherd king here. Jesus cross-grains sinners in love. It says, come put my yoke, take that yoke of sin off and come to my yoke. My yoke that I will place upon you is what you need. It's the truth. It will save. It will quicken. It will feed. It will help you to fulfill the Father's will like I fulfill the Father's will. We see from this life and ministry of Jesus what this means when we think about being sensitive. And that's just an outline point you see what we're pointing to into the text but notice not only in his preaching in his words we also see that he is a sensitive servant by what is prophesied in Isaiah's text notice a battered reed he will not break off a smoldering wick he will not put out what is what is being what is this what's being referenced here a bruised reed here metaphorically is one who has been battered by sin, imprisoned by sin, or feeling the full weight and effects of a sinful life. It's the person, not only physically, but also spiritually. It's not only the woman with the issue of blood, and it's not only the leper with no hope, but it's the person who looks good on the outside, and yet morally they are dead men's bones. Inside, they are dead. They are a bruised reed. These are those that Jesus, in, in back in Matthew chapter 9, looks out upon those having no shepherd and has compassion upon them. He does not just see them as their bodies and their ethnic identities. He sees their souls. And he thinks as a shepherd for their spirits and their souls. And he grieves over them. He grieves over their hearts. He grieves over the effect of sin in their life. He redeems them. He, he redeemed me. He's redeemed those of you who've called upon the name of the Lord. He took your life. There was a life that you had before you knew Jesus, and that life was broken. That life was miserable. That life had the full effects of sin upon it, the effects that sin gave promises that it could not deliver. And Jesus delights to take these, as Paul uses, broken vessels and restore them as the potter takes the clay and he makes new and he mends. Jesus delights in taking broken vessels and placing the beautiful treasure of the gospel and his spirit within them. That's why he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. Here, a bruised reed he will not break. Here, a smoldering wick he does not delight in just finishing it off. Those who've been used up, those that society says you no longer have value, you no longer have economic, uh, we see no interest in you. Those who society tends to look at with the eyes and just push to the margins and say, we have no interest in you. Jesus says, I delight in them. I delight in all of them. But those particularly that society thinks they have no more use, I do. And he has a heart of compassion towards them. This is the sensitive servant who comes. And if you look at the healings that he performs, in, in reality, as we've pointed out week after week and text after text, these are those that society has ignored. Here we see that Jesus heals, redeems, restores those who are at the end of their rope emotionally, physically, spiritually. And he places his calling upon them. Think about the woman at the well. The very first miracle that Jesus performed publicly of, of a woman, John chapter 4, she was a Samaritan. So we'll get to the next point here in just a minute. He, he brings this justice to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. Song says this, in times of waiting, times of need, when I know loss, when I am weak, I know his grace will renew these days, as this group just saying, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord can renew. The Lord can make new. He takes our hearts of stone away in salvation and puts hearts of flesh within. We who were battered reeds and smoldering wicks, God has had mercy upon us. He cares for us. He is gentle and lowly. And then he does his work in us and imparts and restores and gives new hope. He takes terrorists like Saul, who lived for one thing and one thing alone, and that was to terrorize the people of God. And God delights in taking people like Saul and making them trophies of his glory. Taking them and using them for the greater glory of God. God delights to confound the wise, and he delights to make the simple wise. All glory be to Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians. Why does he do this? So that no flesh can glory in his presence. Next point we see here is point number six. We see the steadfast servant in verse 20. The steadfast. He will not put out until he leads justice to victory. He will not cease literally until he triumphs. He, he will not give up. He will not lose motivation. He will not be disheartened, even though greatly opposed and great antagonism is being shown against him. Behold, the sovereign servant of Jehovah. Behold, the steadfast servant of Jehovah. And friends, he is committed to us, not just in our salvation. He is committed to our sanctification. He is committed to working his image in us so that we not be conformed into the image of this world, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we not be pushed into this world's mode. No, no, no. He is the steadfast servant, and he is committed to our change. He works in us. He loves us all the way until the end. D.A. Carson says this, What is pictured is a ministry that is so gentle and compassionate that the weak are not trampled on or crushed until justice and the full righteousness of God triumphs in and through his, his people. He is steadfast. He is the steadfast servant all the way through completing salvation's work. And he continues this work. We are saved. We are being saved. And we will finally be glorified, be fully and finally saved one day in glory forever and ever. In a world of 
things that start but never finish. On my app this week, on my phone this week, I was deleting apps that I hadn't used in a long time that I paid money for, and uh, they just quit. They went out of date or went out of business. In a world that is time-oriented, that starts but never finishes, God finishes what he starts. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he will complete this good work that he has begun in you, church. What is it that he will accomplish? Lastly, here in verse 21, this is the saving servant. This is the saving servant. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. What is it? What is it that we hope in? Well, notice the emphasis here is given to Gentiles. In other words, the hope is for more than just the, the Jews. Jesus comes to bring salvation. Fulfilling the promise that was given to Abraham, that Abraham in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But what Jesus accomplishes upon the cross with his perfect life is the life that you and I can never live. We try to live, but we cannot. He accomplishes everything needed to save us. He fulfills the law, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I've come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He is the saving servant of God with whom God delights in, with whom God is well pleased in. And so now we, the church, take the good news of salvation through his name and we proclaim it. We preach it to every tongue, nation, and tribe because we have experienced it. Acts 1.8, you shall be witnesses of these things. Witnesses of what? Well, we have experienced the gospel and we go forth and preach the gospel. We can't preach what we have not received. Well, we can, but it's not going to be used or, or powerful. We are witnesses to these things. And now we go forth in Jesus' name. This is the saving servant proclaiming his name. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, not in uh, Jehovah, excuse me, not in uh, Joseph Smith, not in uh, Muhammad, not in anyone. Neither is there salvation in any other, not in you, in your good works, in your effort, trying to please God. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is the saving servant. And friend, all you need to do this morning is look to him and live is to come to Jesus and rest in Him. Hear what He has done. Recognize your need for Christ. See that it is your sin that hung Him on that cross. And recognize His work is something that has been done for you. Until you see that what you have done hung Him there, you cannot receive what He has done for you. You must see yourself as a sinner for what God's Word describes you as and gives you the truth as. You must, John 3, be born Again, yeah, but yeah, I'm, I've grown up in the church all my life. You must be born again. Yeah, but I mean, I'm here this morning. You must be born again. Yes, but I read my Bible this week. You must be born again. Yes, but listen, anything other than the finished work of Christ and Christ alone, the response is you must be born again. Not resting in any works of righteousness, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 2, any works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace we are saved. And friends, this is our hope. And this is what Matthew wants us to see as our hope. And Matthew says, hey, friends, the world may despise, Grace Church and visitors here this morning, the world may despise this Jesus, 
But just know this, God is pleased with him. And the only one you need to be worried about is what God thinks. Not what the religious leaders think, not what I think, and not what anyone else thinks. What you need to be worried about is what does he think of his son? And that's what Matthew is doing here. He's shepherding our hearts here this morning. He says, know this, God is well pleased with this sovereign servant. Again, as we conclude this morning, look back with your eyes in the text, verse 15. Excuse me, verse 18. As we conclude this morning, this is, what, this is the application. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen. My beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. Amen. Friends, the Lord is our salvation. He is our hope, and he is everything. All in all is Jesus, and Jesus is everything. Behold the righteous, sovereign servant of God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, we want to be faithful to the reality of the gospel in our lives. Lord, we may watch and wait and not understand what the future brings, but we will wait and be shepherded by our servant king who leads us every day, who feeds us in the truth of scripture. Father, increasingly here in 2023, and as, Lord, as we continue to live faithfully until you return, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith? Father, you're the only one who will never let us down. You're the only one who does not disappoint. You're the only one who loves with a love that is committed to us, that will never leave us nor forsake us. And you are committed to that all the way to glory. As your children, we find that so comforting that the world we look at is not the world where we're threatened by the Chinese or whoever else on any given day, but Lord, we see our God is reigning in the heavens, Psalm 103, 19, and his sovereignty rules over all. That's the world we live in. We look to you. We trust in you. We rest in you. And may we as your people, Lord, live out that confidently, spreading the seed of the gospel every single day, resting in the sovereign servant of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.